This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update. Today, we're talking with Dr. Minnie Callan, a PhD and Vice Dean of the Health Ecosystem at Dell Medical School at UT Austin. Uh, in honor of May being Older Americans Month, we'll talk with Dr. Callan about a study that she led looked, that looked at the effects of empathetic connection in older adults during the pandemic. She's calling in from Austin, Texas. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer from Chicago. Uh, Dr. Callan, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, before we get into the details and results of your study, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to look at the impact of empathetic connection in older adults? Thank you, and it's great to, to be here. So when we began um, really looking at empathetic connection, we weren't we were before COVID. We didn't know just how important it would be. We were really looking at integrating empathetic connection with other elements of non-clinical interventions that might, for example, help to impact uh, diabetes, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, we were going to start a, a program and a trial uh, with our local Meals on Wheels here, the Meals on Wheels of Central Texas. We were going to start a trial that looked at diabetes, but we were going to introduce medically tailored meals and social connection and and some of the empathetic components, just about to start it. And what do you know, COVID hits, we paused, uh, Meals on Wheels had to rethink uh, how they were supporting this community. But because we developed this really strong partnership with them and had really gotten to understand the folks that they were serving, we realized that in fact, new and, and, and you know complicated issues were arising because now these folks were not even being seen on a daily basis as, as they might have been before. And as a result, we, uh, we, we sat on together and said, well, uh, what can we do to really address the, the condition of the time? And the condition of the time was isolation. Yes, and that, that issue of isolation definitely uh, exacerbated by the pandemic in addition to, you know, complicating what you were going in to study. I mean, your idea, uh, from what I understand, grew out of a platform that you're involved with called Factor Health. Can you talk more about uh, that initiative? Sure. So Factor Health is, is part of the, sort of the suite of new kinds of approaches we're all, uh, we're all looking at that address the social determinants and the social drivers of health. Uh, and in our particular part of the puzzle is looking at shorter term interventions, uh, interventions where we are still really addressing individual risk factors. That is not the only problem to be solved, but that's a particular part of the puzzle we look at. But we're, we're imagining a world where instead of having to go to the doctor to better manage your diabetes, programs come to you in the cadence of your life. And which is why we were really interested in, in this case, meals and social connection. But other, uh, other kinds of programs include uh, education um, and support for kids after school um, or uh, really changing the curve of chronic kidney disease before it becomes renal pain failure, before you need dialysis. Uh, and so we have several different uh, programs that we work with in conjunction with healthcare payers in conjunction with community-based providers who have the assets that they can use to actually deliver programs. Uh, we identify opportunities, we build programs, and then we test them out as rigorously as we can. 
yeah, that model of kind of distributed and digital uh, healthcare is uh, uh, definitely a trend and something we've been talking a lot about on the COVID-19 update. Um, when we uh, talk about your study a little bit without going into too much detail, can you detail, can you give kind of the, the top line uh, of what was involved in the study? Sure. The, uh, so the program itself was uh, very simple. And in some ways, it had to be really simple because COVID-19 forced us to make it simple. Uh, necessity is truly the mother of invention. And I'm really glad in retrospect that we had those pressures because we really had to go down to what are the basic and the simplest things we would need to do to make people feel better. And so our program was designed to address loneliness but we also then tested for depression and anxiety. And, and as we'll share in a moment on the results side, we got some of the expected results in loneliness. Um, but in fact, some of the results on depression and anxiety were beyond what we had, um, what we had expected. So the program was one where we use the telephone, not even video conferencing, right? Because to video conference, you'd have to go in and help people set up. So it was the telephone, the most simple technology possible. And then the other, the simplest and most important technology in health, the human heart, empathy, connection, and really being interested in the person at the other end. So we, we found people that were truly interested in connecting with those we were trying to serve. And we used really basic technology. We put it together with some thoughts, which we could talk about in a moment, and we deployed it over four weeks. And before and after, we tested for loneliness, depression, anxiety, and mental health. And we also used a, a randomized control trial structure. So we were actually able to compare against controls. And you had about uh, just shy about 250 older adults participating in this? That's right. We had about 240 adults. Actually, a third of them were below 65, two thirds above 65. And we actually didn't find any differences in our results on, on age, at least in the way we, we'd set it up right now. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. And then in terms of, you know, how often they were called, how did you determine that? Great question. So, you know, the standard approach to these kinds of programs is you decide frequency, you decide all the elements that go into a program that you deliver to people. But of course, when we think about health outside the clinic, we realize that one of the most important pieces is agency, right? People feeling like they are in control of their own lives. And so we use that principle as we designed the program that we were delivering. Uh, so in this case, we asked people what time they wanted to be called. And as much as possible, we really tried to stick with their preference on time. When we began, we began with the first week with five calls. So a daily call on every weekday. But at the end of that, we asked people, we said, well, you've, you've now experienced a call every day. Do you want to continue at that pace or would you like fewer calls? Is that one too many? And we found that about half actually chose fewer calls, half chose the call, the number of calls they'd received. But we thought that the most important part was that they got to choose. And even if they were saying, yes, I want to stick with five calls a week, they were choosing. They were deciding that. I love that. You know, obviously, 
different people need different levels of kind of human contact. But, uh, you know, what you point out there was like the main ingredient that is is the heart and listening. What we talk about, you know, you're using the simplest possible kind of communication, communication outreach, which is the phone. Um, what are the kind of specific guidelines that, you know, encompassed the conversations uh, that you were having with the folks? So, you know, they, we were very, um, you know, we, we, we made sure that that we had the first five days. There were calls. We had quality control in terms of making sure people, you know, were able to give place the calls and, and, and did so at the frequency that that uh, people requested. Um, and we had a little bit of training up front. So the training we provided was net net about two hours. There was one hour of a, of a session the callers had with us. The, the callers were between 17 and 23 years old. And then there was about, we estimated, maximum an extra hour just to learn the logistics of using. We had a red cap system we were using when, when people were calling, et cetera. So not more than that. But the main, you know, training is probably not the right word. What we, what I call it is more orientation. And the biggest orientation we gave folks who were calling was that the most important part of this whole program was to prioritize the person at the other end of the call. That was it. That was the most important thing is that person that you are calling is the most important person in the world. And as part of that, um, the way they would know that they were successful um, is if by the end of the four weeks, they, the caller, had learned about the other person. If they understood who is this person, what are their likes and dislikes, what do they like talking about, what's important to them. And that orientation we've learned in focus groups, subsequent focus groups with our callers, that was really important because they realized that, that the key really was, was listening to the person at the other end. It wasn't anything fancy about how they spoke. Um, and that ended up really being important, uh, we believe, in the in the quality of the calls. Now, then we did help them with some tips and tricks around how you draw someone out. That's not easy. You know, the first time you call, someone may want to talk to you, but they might not immediately have the words. Um, and so there we used an approach where uh, my colleague Stephen Tomlinson uh, suggested an approach where you really listen for clues. And so we we did a little bit of a skit, a little bit of a role play to show what it means to listen to the clues that someone else is providing in their conversation and then to pull on those clues and in that way draw them out into conversation. I imagine that kind of orientation might be a good, uh, powerful orientation for a lot of us out there, uh, not just related to your study. But uh, what I'm really interested to find out is then, you know, after you've had these conversations, you know, what what did you find with this with the study? Yeah. So as I said, you know, we, we looked at loneliness and we use uh, some standard scales and we, we definitely found a, a, a large and significant impact on loneliness pre, pre and post in four weeks. But we also studied depression and anxiety. So um, we use the PHQ as standard tool uh, to measure the symptoms of depression and GAD to measure the symptoms of anxiety. These are tools that are understood by practitioners, uh, by, by healthcare payers, et cetera. Um, and to our surprise, we found a significant, meaningful impact on depression and anxiety. Now, that's all the more remarkable because if you look at loneliness and you looked at sort of where our folks were starting, uh, take the UCLA scale that we use, that scale goes from three to nine. And anyone who has a score of six or above is considered lonely. On average, our population that we were serving were lonely, right? On average, they were a little bit above six. 
Um, on the other hand, when you look at depression and anxiety, we didn't select for depression and anxiety. So you had depression, for example, ranging the PHQ goes from, you know, zero all the way to the high 20s. Uh, high 20s are, of course, um, when you've got, you know, serious depression. But anything 10 and above is considered moderate depression. And then you get to sort of more serious depression. But we had a lot of people below 10. 5 to 10 is mild. We had people that had mild depression, but we had a lot of people below five that would not be considered, you know, depressed at all. So when you've got such a large range and yet you see a meaningful and significant decrease in depression scores, that means that there was something really important happening. And in fact, we, we didn't publish this because we hadn't designed our study to really look at people only with higher depression scores. But post when we did some exploratory analyses and we looked at people that had depression scores 10 and above, we found those you know, the, the decreases in depression scores were even greater for those. So that's very promising for future work. You know, this is like a dream come true for the people that invented those words, reach out and touch someone, because, you know, it's amazing the impact uh, of what that kind of human connection can be and just how scalable something like this could be to improve people's lives on the other end. Do you want to talk about what the other big takeaways are for the medical community? Sure, sure. I mean, I think I think there are several places that this can uh, go, uh, and we're looking at it ourselves. We also invite anyone uh, interested in collaborating to, to reach out to us. Our, our website is sunshinefalls.org. It uh, should be easy to remember. Um, we also have tips and tools, by the way, for the little toolkit that explains what we think were the, the reasons why the program works. So, you know, tips on training. Um, and, and so as soon as folks contact us, we can, we can share that with them. So I think the implications are several. So firstly, there are a lot of amazing programs across the world, uh, globally, where people are placing phone calls for connection. Um, and uh, um, in, in countries like the UK, um, interventions for loneliness have been really prominent. They have a Ministry of Loneliness. In fact, Japan started one um, recently as well. And so in, in those communities, this work is already happening. And at the very least, I really hope these results show that you're making an impact. Now, I can't guarantee it's exactly the impact that, that we got, but it should be hopeful. I think on a personal level, it's impacted me, and I hope it, it, it encourages every person who's thought twice about calling their parents um, or their, their older family members, go ahead and do it, because you're really making a difference on very specific scales that your doctor would say, wow, you did better than me even. <laughs> so go ahead and do it. On the healthcare side, though, there is huge potential. And so there are two ways we look at this. One is really to deploy and to further test these programs. But now for people with clinical depression, with anxiety, and perhaps really focusing on older adults who are more vulnerable and at risk. We believe that that uh, really has huge potential to become integrated into and become part of health programs that are eventually paid for by healthcare. Healthcare payers will benefit from these. As depression and anxiety improves, a lot of things improve. So down the road, once, once proven, we hope healthcare payers would pay for that. Um, and then the other places where it's really helpful is uh, in integration with other chronic disease initiatives. So as you recall, we'd begun by thinking about how do you tie sort of empathetic listening together with, say, diabetes self-management. And now that we have these results and we know that empathetic listening can actually really better manage depression, we're now uh, moving on to starting to test um, whether such programs using this empathetic phone calls can actually help with people that have both depression and diabetes, for example, or depression and hypertension. 
Um, and so we believe there's a lot of potential there because then the value we generate could be even greater um, and thus make it even more attractive for, in the end, the healthcare system to pay for and support such programs. You know, really, it's amazing to think about something that is uh, so simple and relatively low tech and uh, so scalable could make such a huge difference. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth. I'm going to uh, finish up our discussion and, and get on the phone and call my mom and some of my friends uh, because that kind of connection appears to be great medicine. So thank you so thank much, you Dr. So much for uh, for being here today and uh, sharing this important information. I really look forward to seeing results of uh, your further studies on this topic. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. We'll be back with another segment tomorrow. For more resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This content was originally published as part of the AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.